1: you tell anyone who'll listen about their great service but we're the only ones who reward them for it it's the small business awards
2: with softline pastel small business big rewards get your nominations in now your family your community your country your responsibility be the best citizen you can be Find the Bill of Rights on leadersay.co. The Naked Scientist on Talk Radio 702 and 567 Cape Talk with Reedy Clubby. It is 28 minutes to 10 o'clock and we go to the Naked Scientist. We're taking your calls on 21 446 Hello, Chris.
0: Good morning. Are you
2: well today? No cable theft yeah. happened?
0: <laughs> no no they've got my cable back in place again that was only five times in the last oh, five only months. five it's amazing well, isn't it we, only five times we
2: had a tragic one uh, you you've been on the How train have you no, when you were here, you drove uh, from the airport. Well, yeah.
0: I, 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 actually, I actually drove. In fact, yeah. Ben, who came with me, he drove me there because oh, okay. someone had to drive back again. So I was kind of chauffeured. I was lucky.
2: Yeah, so the Ghaot train is very new for us here in in in, in South Africa. So they've just opened the route that takes you from Pretoria to Johannesburg just last week, Chris. And oh, because, the extra leg, because yeah. I, saw,
0: I saw that that was about to open when I was mm, there. And mm. I was saying, well, that will be really good, actually. I'd quite like to go for a, the extended journey.
2: Well, you wouldn't have been able to go for the extended journey... Two days ago, because because of cable theft, there was no transport. The How train wasn't operating on that uh, route. So it's happening everywhere.
0: Oh no! Mm-hmm. That's a shame. It was very disappointing. Is it running now?
2: Hopefully. I don't know. Actually, it is running. Okay, Thomas says it's running, but you know you can never take anything that Thomas says as uh, the honest truth. <laughs> <You>
0: take it <laughs> apart from, from how salt. much he eats. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> <laughs>
2: All right, uh, so tell me about this um, uh, the fungal free market economy how 's that what 's that about
0: Well, many people probably don 't realize that actually when you have a plant growing in the ground. It's a a clever, mutualistic relationship going on between the plant and fungi that live in the soil. These are called mycorrhizal relationships. And this collaboration between the plant world and the fungal world goes back hundreds of millions of years. In fact, some scientists say that plants could never have been so successful at invading the land about 400 million years ago if they hadn't teamed up with fungi to help them. Mm. The reason that this happens is that plants have photosynthesis. This is the ability to use the energy in sunlight to drive chemical reactions that produce... Produce big molecules like sugars from carbon dioxide. Fungi don't have that, but what fungi do have is lots of other clever biochemistry and a very big, extensive network of underground hyphae—these little, tiny fungal filaments—which means that this massive fungal network can be used to collect nutrients and bring them to the roots of a plant. So, what happens is that there's a sort of a bartering goes on. Plants give fungi sugars and things that they can't make, mm-hmm. and in return, the fungi give plants the nutrients like phosphorus that the plants can't make or can't obtain in sufficient amounts to grow well otherwise and this relationship has been going on as I say for millions of years but one big question is well how do you stop each other from cheating because when mm. you've got that kind of relationship there's always a temptation for somebody to start putting the price down they'll take what you've got to offer but they'll pay you less for it so how do plants and fungi keep each other in check and that was a, a question which was being asked by researchers in the netherlands this is toby kears who's from freer university um, and what he and his colleagues did was to take three very closely related fungal species and they grew them in a petri dish a culture dish in the lab alongside the roots of a plant it looks a bit like a little clover plant it's called Medicargo uh, truncatula that's the name of the plant they use just it's just a convenient experimental specimen, and what they were able to show is that there's this very clever kind of free market economy going on. When a fungus and a plant root meet, the amount of fungu- the amount of sugar that the plant gives to the fungus directly determines how much phosphorus the fungus gives back to the plant. Oh. But some fungi are more generous than others. And when you grow multiple different types of fungus together with one plant, the plants can tell which fungi are cheating them and which are being more generous. Whoa. And they selectively reward the fungus which is the best one. And as a result, the fungus which is the more generous outcompetes the other ones because it's getting more sugar and so on. And the way they did it was by using radioactive carbon dioxide to label the sugars in the plants and radioactive phosphorus to label the nutrients in the fungus and seeing how they swapped between the two organs. So a very elegant study been published this week in the Journal of Science.
2: That is fascinating, I'm telling you. Just this trade-off uh, for mutual benefit. Uh, and then the other story about pr- uh, programming immune cells to pursue and kill blood cancers. How's that going?
0: Yeah, well... Many people have heard of chemotherapy, the idea of trying to tackle a cancer by giving people various drugs which home in on fast-dividing or fast-growing cells like cancer cells and destroying them. The problem is that chemotherapy is as an, indiscriminate and it has all kinds of horrible side effects because it doesn't just take down cancer cells, it also harms healthy tissue, which is why people get things like their hair falling out, they lose lots of weight, they can get anemic and so on. So what researchers in more recent years have been trying to do is to actually use the fine highly focused, highly targeted abilities of our own immune system to tackle cancer and one very important group of cancers are the blood cancers the leukemias and lymphomas which are caused by cells that make up our blood running amok and becoming malignant mm. and there's a very interesting paper it's in the journal of science translational medicine this week it's by michael Kalos and his colleagues they're a group at the university of pennsylvania and what they have done is to take t cells these are white blood cells that are endowed with the ability to home in on and destroy other cells in the body including say cells that normally would be infected with a virus or something. And they take those white blood cells from a patient who has got a type of blood cancer. In this case, they looked at three patients with a disease called CLL, which is chronic lymphocytic leukemia. They take their white blood cells, their T cells, and they add to them a disabled virus, which adds to the cells a genetic construct, in other Mm -hmm. words, some pieces of DNA, which enable the cells to express on their surface a recognition protein in other words a kind of docking station for a certain marker which is expressed by the cancer cells they then put those white blood cells back into the patients and they do it in a series of steps so the patients don't get overwhelmed with too many cells at once and they then followed them up and of the three patients after they received these modified cells back into their bloodstream after six months, the cancer cells have been completely cleared from their peripheral blood. In two of the three patients, there was complete disease remission. The cells got into their bone marrow and even destroyed the cells that were causing the CLL in the first place in those patients. And excitingly, the infused cells also carried on policing the situation for many months because one of the problems with doing this in the past has been that uh, you put the cells in and then they very quickly disappear. Mm. And in this case, because of the way they've built the cells and constructed them with other signaling molecules that make them want to carry on growing, they were still detectable in these patients many months later and this, say the researchers, is a very good way of, of achieving what's called immune surveillance. Mm. So if the disease pops up again somewhere else, you've you've got these cells waiting to delete the disease and of course it's only targeting the disease, it's not targeting healthy tissue. They reckon that each of the cells they infused, it individually got rid of 1,000 cancer cells wow. leading to the overall removal of more than a kilogram of tumour cells from each of these patients.
2: Alrighty, then let's go to the lines. Uh, we're taking your calls on oh two one four four six oh five six seven oh double one 446 0567 Let's go to, um, is it Tabelo in Kempton Park? Good morning, Tabelo. Uh,
1: morning, Rudy mm. Morning, Chris. Yeah. Hello, Tabelo. Um, I just want to ask Chris, uh, my three year old son, his pupils, mm-hmm.
0: um,
1: they keep on like shrinking and extracting like most of the day. Uh, I don't know, what causes that?
0: Hi, Tabella. Well, that's true for everybody, um, because what you have in your eye are rings of muscles called the ciliary muscles, and the ciliary muscles are in a circle around your pupil, in your iris, and they are controlled by a special set of nerve cells which are in your brain stem and according to how much light comes into your eye your brain calculates how big or small to make the pupil so that you let the least amount of light through in order to see clearly and that's because the bigger the pupil is the more blurred the image is so if you make the pupil nice and small just like on a camera you can get much better depth of focus with a small pupil because it works like a pinhole camera and so this is a very clever bit of neurological programming and it's done by uh, a structure in the brainstem called the edinger westfowl nucleus and the signal comes out of that nucleus and goes down to your eye and turns the muscles up or down according to how active you need them to be to make the pupil bigger and smaller and it's tailored to how much light there is so when it's very bright very small pupil mm-hmm. when it's very very dark or nighttime the pupil gets very very big and you tend to see it in children because um they uh tend to to have um quite big eyes relative to the size of their face so because the eyes are a dominant feature on the face you notice them more
2: yeah but this happens for everybody chris you you did say that earlier. and it's
0: perfectly normal yeah there are some abnormalities with pupil size but they don't tend to affect both eyes at once they tend to affect one eye only um, and that's why you tend to notice them because of the asymmetry but if he's not complaining that his vision is compromised, uh-huh. then it's probably just normal.
2: Okay, James in Blackowry. Oh, sorry, Janice in
0: Blackowry, yeah, I beg your yeah, pardon. Oh, hi. Hi, hi there, hi, hi there. Mm. Um, hi, Janice. I've got a, a
1: question. It's bugged me for months, and uh, I'm hoping you can help. Uh, you know these pay-as-you-go systems when you pay for a parking whatever, um, and you put the coin in and it rejects your coin? Mm. And then if you scratch the coin <laughs> on the surface, lots of these places have little scratching Yeah. Uh, parts where you can stretch the coin, put it in, and then it works. Why is that?
0: I experienced it all <laughs> the You're time. time. Now, I'm going to be bugged by this because I've heard of that and I don't know how that works. So I'm not going to try and invent something. If someone knows or you run one of those machines, please tell us because I would like to know too. Otherwise, Jones, I'll take this away as homework and I'll come up with the answer for you for next week. Yeah,
2: I'd that. love to get that answer, Chris, because it actually does work when you scratch the coin. But there's one particular shopping uh, mall down the road from me. Uh, the security guard ca- or the car guard comes through and stops you from doing that. They literally give you a lecture and they Shouted you when you scratch the coin against the surface, uh, and yet it works when you do that. So I don't know. All right, let's go to Audrey in Melbourne Strand. Hi.
1: Hello. Morning, Rudy. Mm. Um Chris, could you tell me for 15 years I've worn a copper bangle, never taken it off, and uh, there are some weeks where it's a bright gold color, orange color, and then it suddenly changes and goes almost black. What causes that from the body um, component?
0: Hi, Audrey. Does your wrist go a nice corresponding green colour to go with the black bangle?
1: Um, no, it doesn't.
0: No. <laughs> You're uh-huh. lucky, because many people say mm. that that does happen. Um, the reason that the bangle changes colour is because copper... The native metal is a nice coppery colour. It's that pink colour. And when it oxidises, it reacts with chiefly oxygen from the air and forms a a form of copper oxide. This is a dark browny black color so when you look at coins that have become tarnished they've actually got a layer of copper oxide on their surface so something that's oozing out of you is making the bangle oxidize the most likely ingredient is in sweat and sweat is mildly acidic from your skin there's also carbon dioxide dissolved in it and this probably etches away the surface of the metal making a nice pink color to start with this then reacts with oxygen in the air when it dries off overnight for example and acquires a nice black color so i suspect it depends on how much sweat you're making to actually clean the bangle off and then how much uh, oxidation layer it builds up on the clean metal once it's been exposed in the first place
2: thank you very much audrey and Cecil, susan kivett please stay on the line i'm going to take your calls right after this the naked scientist on talk radio 702 and 567 cape talk with really clubby 13 minutes to 10 o'clock. Let's quick, quickly go to it in Bratpan. Good morning to you. Good
1: morning, Reddy. Really. Hi, Chris. Mm. Hello. Um, good morning. I want to find out, um, if um, we do a lot of drag racing. And if you build a drag race in the direction of, say, east to west, and you race in the opposite direction if the, uh, on the direction of the earth's turn, will you do a quicker time over a measured distance, say, 400 metres, like a quarter mile we race, or will it stay the same? If you race from west <laughs> to east or west to west. Do you do legal
2: well. drag racing, Kivet? Is it legal, what are you doing? No, <laughs>
1: yeah, okay, no, we he's... do drag racing
0: with a car. Um, and if you... Okay, I know what you mean. I'll, I'll get on with answering the question then. Um, well, there are a lot of considerations here, which is that although the Earth may be turning towards you slightly uh, faster as you're driving your dragster along the surface of the Earth, you've got to bear in mind that the wind is being pulled around... the atmosphere by the earth turning so if you drive in the direction that the earth is turning you're going with the wind and if you drive in the direction against which the earth is turning although the earth will be coming towards you a little bit relative to the direction you're trying to go in the air will be coming as well so as a result, you're going to meet a lot more air resistance. And you see this when you fly in an aeroplane. If you fly with the direction of turn of the Earth, in other words, it's turning towards the east, your flight time is much lower than if you fly against the direction of turn of the Earth. It sounds paradoxical because the Earth should be turning the opposite way you're going, so it should get there quicker, but you don't because all of the air being pulled around with the earth pushes you back on your aeroplane so you have to burn more fuel and work harder to fly at the same uh, speed relative to the ground as you otherwise would. So I would go with the wind if I was you, and good luck with your racing.
2: Um, if it's legal, keep it. but if it's not legal, the police <laughs> phone me now. I'm going to have to give them your contact details, I'm afraid. Let's go to Cecil in Orange Grove. Hi.
0: Hello,
1: good morning, mm. really Good morning, Dr. Chris. yeah. Dr. Chris, I have a two-part question, please. If we take one gallon of water, which weighs 10 pounds, and freeze it, is there any weight differential between the water and the ice that we've made? The reason for me asking is take a large glass of water, put ice cubes into that glass of water. The ice cube cubes tend to float Near the surface of the water.
0: Thank you, Dr. Curtis. Okay. Okay. Um, if we assume that we're not talking quantum mechanics, um, the answer is that there that there isn't a difference in the mass of the ice. Um, the ice actually has slightly less energy, so I would think it would be a slightly less massive at a minute level. But uh, thinking entirely uh, Newtonian physics and big stuff, basically, when you take water and you freeze it the molecules that have turned from water into ice remain exactly the same, there's the same number of them they're just configured in space slightly differently and they take up more space as ice than they do as water and because they take up more space the same mass is distributed over a bigger area and therefore, or a bigger volume and therefore the density of ice is lower than the density of water but the actual mass will remain the same and because the density of the ice is lower than the density of the water then the ice cube will float but it's actually pushing out of the way exactly the same amount of water in terms of mass that the ice weighs and when the ice cube melts therefore it will just turn into that corresponding volume of water so your drink assuming you filled the glass right to the top and had ice bobbing around in it your drink will not overflow when the ice melts
2: Okay Cecil does that answer your question?
1: Does that the same uh, apply to uh, Dr. Chris to icebergs then?
0: It it absolutely does, Um, except an iceberg is like a giant ice cube and this is the point about melting of ice sheets. If you look at uh, the Arctic and the North Pole, most of the ice in the North Pole is actually floating. Therefore, it's already displacing most of the water that it's going to displace out of the way already. Um, there is some ice on land. If you take Greenland as an alternative, this ice is taking up space on land. It is not pushing any water out of the way. And therefore, when it melts, unlike the, uh, unlike the North Polar ice, the Greenland ice flows into the sea and pushes the water level up.
2: We've got Craig calling us. And, Craig, you manufacture those coin machines that we were talking about earlier.
1: Yes, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're a Swiss company that manufactures the, the equipment. I believe you were talking about the coin acceptance.
2: Yes. And you're saying that there is no, it makes no difference. But it does, Craig. I've experienced it. I
0: promise <laughs> you. Absolutely. I've had people okay. ask me this, but well, I would be delighted to know how this yes. works. Uh,
1: you have what you call an acceptance window on, on a coin unit. Now, if you didn't waste the time scratching the coin and just <laughs> took the coin and popped it back in there, effectively what's happening is it's falling in at different angles. And at some stage or another, it'll catch within that acceptance window and allow you to allow the coin to be accepted. Whether
2: you scratched it or not.
1: Whether you scratched it or not. It uh, makes absolutely no difference. But this isn't a South African thing. This is an international thing. It's an international perception. It's uh, it's quite interesting from, um, you know.
2: Craig, you know what, my darling? I'm going to continue scratching, okay, just for my Sorry. own peace
1: of mind. Go for it. <laughs> <laughs> From Thanks, a Craig. Perspective. I think I would I would reserve comment to say that um, you know <laughs> we're, we're damaging coins when we do that, but yeah, uh, yeah no. Uh, if, if, if you feel better because of it, then by all means. <laughs>
2: <laughs> thanks for calling. That's very really gracious. It'll
1: make no difference
2: whatsoever. Uh, I don't know about that, but thanks, Craig. <laughs> Thank you. And there'll be situations. What happens then, Craig, when it rejects the same coin over and over again? Because that also happens. You put in the 5 rent coin, it rejects the second time, third time, fourth time, and then you find those guys who are singing at the parking lot uh, helping you along and exchanging 5 rent coins to give you the suitable one.
1: In, in essence, um, what happened a little while ago was the Reserve Bank um, swapped there. For example, it's generally speaking the 5-rand coins. And mm. The Reserve Bank swapped out those coins because of the fact that there was a large amount of fraudulent coins in the process or in the, in, in in circulation. So uh, what you, you often find is that uh, you've got a, a, either a fraudulent coin or a very worn coin. And if it's been in, in, in the in circulation for a period of time, it doesn't fall into the acceptance window. And remember, you're dealing with an electronic eye which can't look at the coin physically and say that for definite is, is, a, okay. is a coin. So it's got to rely on certain uh, characteristics.
2: Craig, lovely call. Thanks indeed, hey? Thanks okay. for calling. Bye-bye. 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 Susan in Bryanston. Um Yes, hi. I'm calling to find out about the usefulness to the body of glyconutrients. I was approached by someone who um, was marketing these products. They noticed I had um, small joint arthritis in my hand. And they said that this is sort of a mu- miracle thing, these glyconutrients so don't, don't get su- sufficient from the soil nowadays. And that, in fact, they can cure just about anything, including cancer in the body.
0: Chris? Oh, hello, Susan. As soon as people start using the word miracle and cure mm-hmm. in the same sentence, uh, my alarm bells start ringing. Um, so I, I would advise you to do the same. When people try and tell you things like that, that sounds too good to be true medicinally, probably worthy being uh, worthy of, of enormous scepticism. Um, they want to sell you something and they want your hard-earned money and they don't really care whether or not uh, it works or not. If they have got good clinical evidence that one of their products works, then they'll have a trial. They'll actually have data where they've put patients on a placebo, a dummy drug, versus patients with the same problem on the real drug or even the same mm-hmm. patient initially on the placebo, then on the real drug. They'd have followed them up medically and properly in a blind fashion so no one knew what anyone was getting. They just measured how their health went and if you've got that kind of level of data to support a product then and they can show it to you, then their product might have some validity. If they haven't got that kind of data, ask for it uh, if it never is forthcoming, they probably haven't got it at all, and therefore it's probably not worthwhile buying their product um, there was a lot of hype around these kind of things about 5 to 10 years ago lots of people started using them, especially for things like arthritis, as you say uh, glucosamine tablets and things like that um, there was a trial published in the British Medical Journal, uh, or, re- or at least reported there in the last year or so and they found that there was no actual evidence that they made any difference to people's disease outcomes so um, I'm a bit sceptical myself as to whether they're going to be the panacea everyone says
2: Alright, Lindy and Santon, hi
1: Hi Rudy, hi mm. Chris mm. I just want to find out um, this might sound silly um, in winter I sweat only in my
2: nose summer, okay, I can sweat other places but my nose would be the first one but it's winter, is that?
1: you know. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, why is that? And my two um, other children, they have that, you know, um, as well.
0: All right, sweating on the nose. <laughs> do you mean sweating actually on the outside of the yeah. nose, Lindsay? <laughs> or do you mean actually as you get a runny nose in winter?
2: On the outside of the nose. But just sweating, like on the outside of the nose. Okay.
0: Yeah, well, I think probably what may appear to be sweat could actually be just normal skin secretions because the face is covered, as as is most of the bodies, covered in tiny glands which secrete various chemicals including oils and greases and things to nourish and protect the skin and in wintertime when the environment is harsher, it's windier and skin gets dried out more, then the secretions can increase to compensate and it may be that you're just noticing because they're being produced more often you're noticing the stuff collecting there more often because you do get this little kind of glistening layer on the skin which is the, the skin's natural secretions nourishing it and it might just be that you're increasing the production in winter time because of things like, like wind and temperature and when you go indoors because the secretion doesn't switch off immediately when you go indoors you're going to notice it's, it's there slightly more. In the summer the sweat evaporates more quickly and uh, breezes and warm weather will blow the stuff away more quickly so you, you may not notice it so much.
2: Okay Chris, lovely chatting to you. We'll see you again next week.
0: All right. Thanks for having me. Thanks uh, thanks also to Craig for the wonderful coin answer. Yes, that was great. absolutely. Loved it. Loved it. We'll podcast
2: all of that and more. Thanks, Chris. Bye bye.
0: See you soon, Rudy. Bye bye.
1: Do you love anime, gaming, movies, and discovering how your favorite pop culture affects everything you do? Then join us on Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect. I'm Nick Friedman. I'm Lee Alec Murray. And I'm
2: Lee, your president.